I've made this point several times, but I'm from Alabama, where most people wear shoes. And uh, man, Eric, there it's just a tough crowd today. They're not laughing at anyone's jokes. There, yeah, they, they didn't they didn't get that either. But yeah, I am from Alabama and uh, grew up wearing shoes and reading and things like that. But I got to Texas, and you know, Texans are proud of their state as they should be. And there are lots of catchy phrases that they throw around. And, of course, one that you know well is, everything's bigger in Texas. And people are impressed by big. You go into a big HEB, you get lost. You know, that's impressive. I remember the first HEB I went into, being from Alabama, we had one type of salsa. It was called Pace. And uh, that's what you ate. And then I went into the HEB... And it was like an aisle devoted to salsa. And, uh, you know, I believe the wedding supper of the lamb is going to be Tex-Mex. And so bigger is better. And we like big stuff. And there's this website called largest.org. And it's full of lists of the biggest things on earth. In fact, they describe themselves like this. Largest.org is a reference work put together in the pursuit of ranking and listing the biggest of everything in the world. Uh, they've got a page. The tallest country stars. Number eight on the list is Alan Jackson. Comes in at 6'4". Number one is Ray Benson, who is the lead singer of Asleep at the Wheel, and he's six foot seven. Wow, that's pretty big. Uh, they've also got a list of the 10 largest college campuses. A&M, I think, is number nine. But the, the largest college campus in America has 27,000 acres. It's a little small religious school in North Georgia, Rome, Georgia, called Barry College. And I grew up playing on their golf course called Stonebridge. They got 27,000 acres on their campus. And it's the biggest college campus in the world. That's pretty impressive. They got the 10 biggest pizzas ever made. And I like pizza, so I bookmarked that one, you know. The largest pizza ever made was made in Italy in 2012. And it measured 13,000 square feet. That's big. That's not a personal size. That's for you and all your friends and then some. Can you imagine a 13,000 square foot pizza? That's big. That is impressive. And as people who find big things impressive, and maybe especially as Texans and adopted Texans, uh, our penchant for largeness puts us at a disadvantage when it comes to the things of God. Because he's not always interested in big things. Apparently, bigger is not always better. And when Jesus says his kingdom's coming, he says it's coming slowly and inconspicuously and starts incredibly small. And when you look at the world, it's hard to argue with him. Nobody really wants to get in the business of arguing God, but we do it. And you look at the world, though, and this is one point that you just kind of let it ride. You know, our world is a mess. It's broken. And if Jesus is bringing a kingdom, he ought to tell somebody about it. You know, he ought to make it obvious. That's how we feel anyway. It's not always apparent that that's true. And yet in these parables, I think he's trying to speak to people like us. People who are predisposed to value things that are big and to overlook things that are small. Because if he doesn't redirect our attention and alert us to the reality of his kingdom... We're bound to just pass right over it and ignore it before it ever brings the harvest he promises it's going to bring. 
And so I think this morning Jesus wants to show, to show us that true disciples aren't discouraged by slow results, or you could say small results, but they plant in hope for the harvest. This morning I'm going to show you three reasons why they plant in hope for the harvest. But before we get there, I want to remind you of the context of this passage. It feels like we've been in Mark 4 for months and uh, we started back a few weeks ago in Mark 4, 1, where Jesus went out to the Sea of Galilee and began teaching the crowds again. And he taught them in parables. Mark makes this point over and over and over between verse 1 and verse 34 that Joe read for us, that Jesus only spoke to the crowds in parables. And that was confusing for him and confusing for his disciples. So when they got him alone, they asked him, hey, will you please help us understand what you're trying to accomplish with your parables? And he said that the parables were for the purpose of concealing and hiding the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, the world would hear it, repent, and turn to God. And he wasn't interested in that. Instead, he was trying to give the secrets of the kingdom to the chosen few, to his disciples, for a season. And they struggled with that, maybe like you do. And so last week, he explained to them the parable of the soils, that the parable of the soils sort of uh, a paradigm for all of Jesus' ministry, that some people respond to Jesus with joy, and they hear the gospel, repent and believe, and they respond because they're like good soil, that once the word hits their hearts, they receive it and they act on it. But other people are like rocky soil or thorny soil, or their seed gets planted on the path and Satan comes and takes it away. The, the divided response to Christ comes down to the reality and the condition of the hearts of the people who hear. But today he gives them another reason, another sort of angle on the parables, and one that I think they desperately needed, and I know that as I was preparing, I needed to hear. Because it's not like Jesus wants to hide away the secrets forever. And it's not like he's got a group of his friends who are going to be the in crowd forever. But the hiddenness, the concealment was temporary. And so that's the first reason that disciples don't get discouraged by slow results, because they, they know that the hidden work of the kingdom is temporary. So from the disciples' perspective, the lack of genuine response to the gospel had to have been somewhat of a problem of Jesus' own making. You know, if you're looking to draw a crowd and to get people signed up for the kingdom, the parables are, by Jesus' own definition, the worst way to go about it. And so the disciples, you know, who have been hand-selected for ministry, he's going to teach them everything they need to know so that he can send them out with authority to preach and cast out demons. And they're wondering, like, why have you chosen such a counterintuitive method for ministry? Why not, why not speak plainly? Why not just come out in the open and tell everybody who you really are? And that's what the parable of the lamp is all about. He's trying to explain it. Jesus knew that the slow response to the gospel was all part of God's plan and that the hidden work of the kingdom was temporary. He says in verse 21, and we're going to look at these parables again, just kind of reminding ourselves what Joe read for us, that a lamp's not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Nor under a bed. It's not, is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. As a kid, I remember hearing this parable and imagining the, the table lamp that my mom, you know, would have next to our sofa. And maybe you're like me, and when you hear the word lamp, you think of the thing that you turn, 
And you always have to turn it a couple of times, don't you? It's always weird. You never can just turn it once and it comes on. But they didn't know even that small minor inconvenience. In a world before electricity, the only way a person could light their home when the sun went down was by a candle or a lamp, a little oil lamp made of pottery that was filled up with olive oil and lit out at the spout and to cast a flame for the house. They were everywhere. I mean, every home would have had one. And even today, they are the most common artifact dug up by archaeologists, these little clay lamps. That's how common they were. Even today, after thousands of years getting crushed in the rubble, they're still there to be found. And when Jesus used this analogy and metaphor, like all his parables, immediately his disciples would have been drawn in. They, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have experienced this a thousand times before, and they would have known, of course, that a lamp is meant to be put on a lampstand. You don't take it out and light it up and then put it under a basket or stick it under your bed. It's no good there. A lamp provides no light if it's covered up. But they were probably a little bit confused because Jesus says this. Nobody takes a lamp out and then puts it under a basket. But in their mind, they got to be thinking like, but Jesus, that's exactly what you're doing. You are the light of the world. You are the one who's shining a light on what God's doing. You are the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. But you are purposefully concealing your message. Why are you doing it? He says it's temporary. It's nothing has been hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. One commentator said that Jesus is like a person organizing a scavenger hunt, that he purposefully conceals the truth so that your joy is multiplied when you uncover it. That is Jesus' intent. He knew a time was coming when the light was going to shine brightly for all the world to see. But for a season... It was concealed and hidden just for his disciples. I mean, think about it. If Jesus had have went out onto the busiest street in all of Galilee and said, hey, everybody, gather around. I've got an important announcement to make. I am the Messiah. You can imagine how people would have responded. There were messianic pretenders before, and their lives all pretty much in the same way. They get crucified. And that is what ended up happening to Jesus. But he had some work to do before he got to that point. I mean, think about it. If he had have announced himself as Messiah and the authorities killed him right then and there, what would have happened to these 12 men that Jesus had personally called by name and promised to make them fishers of men? He, he had a job to do. Before it was time for the world to know him, he had to make sure that his disciples had absorbed his teaching, had observed his interactions with people. So their thinking was reshaped to his so that they knew what the kingdom was all about, and they knew what kind of life kingdom people were supposed to live. One day, after his resurrection, they would stand out on the street corner and do exactly what Jesus did. I love what Peter says in Acts 2.36, I think it is. He says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. They're going to announce it for the world to hear. They're going to go to the ends of the earth, plant churches in India and in Rome and in Africa. They're going to go all over announcing the reality of Jesus as the Messiah and the coming King. But for a season, temporarily, Jesus was hiding the gospel from the crowds. The disciples were living through what the commentator William Lane called a period of hiddenness, which was a prelude to manifestation. And so Jesus told them, take care what you listen to. Take care 
what you listen to. I wish we could just spend a whole day thinking about that phrase. Y'all take care of what you listen to. You know, God gave you two ears so you can listen twice as much as you speak. That's what my mom told me. (laughs) But uh, all the time, stuff is coming into our minds through our ears, and it's filling up our heads with thoughts, and it's wooing our hearts towards this thing and that thing. I wish we could just think about how dangerous it is to let yourself hear things without any thought. But Jesus says, take care what you listen to. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then more will give it, be given you besides. This parable of the measures used by Jesus in other places, he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's actually pretty flexible. That's the way parables are. They're an image, and so it can be applied to different spiritual truths. And in Matthew 7, he uses it to talk about the way we judge each other. Like, don't be overly harsh in your judgment towards other people, because that's the same kind of measure God's going to use for you. And so if you're overly harsh towards people, you can expect that God's going to measure back to you with that same sort of evaluation. But here in Mark 4, he's not talking about the way we evaluate other people. He's talking about the way we evaluate the significance of his message. And as people who are prone to prioritizing what is big and in bright lights, we need to be particularly careful. I mean, Jesus knew that the temptation was going to be to hear his message and to see the fruit of his ministry and to miscalculate its significance. So Jesus challenged those first disciples to press in to be careful what they listen to and to measure it accurately because he was going to pour out on them even more understanding. It's like we said a couple weeks ago, that with parables, you get out of them what you put into them. And so if they would contemplate and chew on all the things they heard from Jesus, it was going to open itself up and they were going to receive a richer and fuller understanding. You got to think that after the resurrection, when the light bulb came on for them, and they recognized that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, and that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, that things started to fall into place. And sometimes the gospel writers uh, alert us to that. They'll include a phrase like, and then they remembered that he said this, or because they understood that he had meant this. All the things started to fall into place. They chewed on it, and they took it with them, and eventually he gave them even deeper understanding. And after the resurrection, they stood up and they announced it for the world to hear. And so if we're going to be Jesus' disciples, living in a world that's opposed to Christ, where the fruit of the gospel doesn't always seem obvious and opposition is all around us, uh, we're bound to be discouraged, unless we remember this, that the the hidden work of the kingdom is temporary. Like for a season, Jesus' methods seem counterintuitive, and unimpressive from the world's point of view. And so perhaps like the disciples, you've wondered, hey, if Jesus really is bringing his kingdom, why isn't it more obvious? You know, wouldn't we see signs all around us? Like if Jesus was, like the Bible says, ruling and reigning on his throne in heaven, shouldn't that make a difference in the world? Why why then is our country sort of spinning out of control? Why do the people who were raised in church seem to find no significance with it anymore. What, what's going on? I think part of the problem is we're, we are primed to assess the usefulness or worth of something based on its popular appeal or response. And think about this. You, I don't know if y'all do the Netflix thing where you stream all your shows, 
But during the Super Bowl, I had to watch commercials for the first time in a long time. And I was thinking about it this week, how marketers are brilliant. They know how to convince us to buy things. And one thing they often do to convince us to buy toothpaste and face wash is to tell us about how many dentists and dermatologists approve of their product. You know, hey, this product was developed with the help of dermatologists. And that's somehow supposed to give it extra weight. Uh, People advertise TV shows. They say the number one show in America, as if to imply, if you're not watching this, you are a loser. All right? That's what they're trying to tell you. And so then you get Jesus' message. And, And he doesn't try to convince you of its worth. He doesn't tell you, hey, everybody's jumping on board. Hey, you got to get into this gospel thing on the ground level. Everybody's buying in. And so he says, be careful what you listen to. That is hidden for a season. And someday, the whole world will see. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2, that Jesus didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human likeness, he became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. But God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I skipped a part. Every tongue confess on the earth and under the earth. The kingdom comes mysteriously, inconspicuously, smallly, now. But someday, every person who's ever existed is going to be assembled before the judgment seat of Christ, and they will have to acknowledge Him for who He is. So for now, it's small and inconspicuous, but that's temporary. A day's coming when all will be revealed. The second reason disciples keep on planting in hope is because they know kingdom growth's inevitable. Kingdom growth is inevitable. And that's what Jesus' parable of the farmer is all about. This is the only parable in Mark that's only found in Mark. The other parables you can find, they're parallel in Matthew or Luke. But the parable of the farmer is unique to Mark. And it's a really interesting one. Let's, let's read it again. He says, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself doesn't know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, Jesus has been talking about seeds before, and he's going to talk about seeds after. And so, as a reader of Mark, we are totally primed to understand this seed as the word of the gospel that he plants uh, in the parable of the soils, the, the word that he preached in Mark 1, 14 and 15, when he came out of the wilderness preaching, saying, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And I believe the seed that the farmer sows is the gospel message. He sows it. He plants it. Jesus' first act was to preach. And he told his disciples in Mark 1, 38 that his mission was to preach. But you got to ask yourself, does preaching work? Is, is preaching effective? I have a little self-referential here. But as a preacher, you, you sometimes wonder that. You know, you'll leave after church on Sunday, and you'll go home, and your wife who's in Jesus' kids will say, how do you think your sermon was? And you're like, 
fishing for compliments and reassurance, which are like, ah, you know, that's probably the worst sermon I ever preached in my life. Just like, I'm sure it wasn't all that bad. Um, and, you know, and you wonder, like, how could anybody get anything out of the mess of words that just came out of my mouth? That's, that's sometimes how it feels. And, and then you put, put it to these disciples who hear Jesus announcing a coming kingdom, but all they hear him do is teach and preach. And what king ever conquered his enemy by sermonizing? No king ever showed up and said, hey, I'm about to take over your kingdom. Uh, open up your Bibles to Romans 13, you know? And that's not the way kings work. Usually it requires an impressive show of force. You have to get your soldiers lined up on a battlefield so that you can scare the other guy into submission and surrender, or you have to fight a military campaign and you have to bring them into subjection. How can 2,500 words spewed out over 35 minutes accomplish anything? I don't know. But that's what Jesus' parable says happens. Though the disciples were like their first century Jewish counterparts and expecting some kind of military conqueror, a Messiah who was going to roll into Jerusalem on a white horse and kick out the Romans, uh, that's not who Jesus was. That apparently wasn't part of his plan. He had no intentions of drawing a sword and taking people's heads. And so maybe they thought that Jesus' method needed some kind of tweaking. That like, hey, maybe we should focus group this thing. Not producing the results we think you ought to be if you really are bringing your kingdom. Maybe preaching's not the thing to do anymore. But in the parable of the farmer, Jesus says that just as the harvest naturally flows from the sowing of seed, so too the kingdom naturally follows the preaching of the gospel. And he makes the point through hyperbole and exaggeration. You know, and if this was all that farming entailed, I, I could do it, okay? If you just got to go out and throw your seeds on the ground and then go to bed, and next thing you know, it's a bumper crop, that would be easy. And I don't think that's what Jesus really intended. I think he's using hyperbole and exaggeration because even though first century farmers didn't know all about the germination process like the people at A&M do today, they still had a practical working knowledge of farming. They knew if you want to maximize your harvest, you got to go out and pull weeds sometime. You can't just go to sleep and wake up and expect to have the biggest harvest you've ever had. But Jesus says that is the way actually the gospel works. Because just as the seed has dormant within itself all the potential of the future harvest, Jesus says latent, buried in the gospel message is a future harvest that God's going to reap. It's all there. I mean, Jesus had virtually unlimited confidence in the ability of God's word to accomplish what it said it was going to accomplish. I mean, and we saw it a couple weeks ago and he's speaking to the scribes from Jerusalem. Truly, I say to you, when Jesus spoke, it happened. It, his word didn't return to him void. He says, we're going to see it next week, peace be still to the waves, and it perfectly obeys. Jesus had unlimited confidence in God's faithfulness to fulfill his word. It's a confidence that we don't have. And so as a preacher, it's hard for me to say, but I will, that if you're the type of person impressed by big, planting seeds or preaching the gospel seems pretty insignificant. It's hard to see how any one particular sermon could make any difference in the world. 
when there are marketers constantly bombarding us, sending us personalized ads to your phone all hours of the day, getting random text messages from numbers you've never heard of trying to get you to renew your T-Mobile or something. It's crazy. How could, how could one gospel message cut through all the noise and the static and make any difference? And sometimes people see that kind of context and they suggest maybe the days of preaching are over. It's actually really popular in church circles. You know, we need to get away from the monologue and get into more of the dialogue. We need to recognize that, hey, God's speaking through all of us and we need to do that. And, and I believe that he does speak through all of us and some of y'all have preached to me sermons I've needed to hear. But what the world needs is not another political organization another group of activists with some cause to champion. They don't need some nonprofit NGO that's going to change the world. That's not what the world needs. I think more than ever, the world needs the gospel. I mean, Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He, he likes this phrase, the power of God the power of God. That's what I want. I want the power of God when I preach. I want people to leave here shaken because they encounter the living God in his word. He loves it so much, he uses it in multiple places. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. He says over on the next page, a few verses later, Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Look, I, we can be honest here. I don't know if preaching has lost its power in the world we live in or whatever. But as long as, it's, as, long as you'll have me, I'm going to stand here and preach. Not my ideas. Not what I've been reading and thinking about. Not lessons I've learned in my life. I try not to tell you lots of stories about me because I'm not preaching me. I'm preaching Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. I can't preach well enough to save anybody. No one can. But buried within the gospel message is God's power. That when his word goes out, it doesn't return to him void, but it accomplishes everything he sent it to accomplish. That means that dead people are raised when he speaks. Lazarus, come forth. That means blind people receive their sight. That means people with leprosy get completely cleansed, and that means lost people hear his invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus' word has within it everything that produces the harvest. We don't have to come up with some kind of newfangled message. We don't need to focus group it. That would probably ruin it. All we need to do is commit ourselves to planting in hope for the coming harvest, because we know kingdom growth is inevitable. And you know that from personal experience. Because everybody here 
at one time or another, had somebody share the good news of Jesus with you. It was a mom, a dad, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, whoever. They were faithful like that farmer to plant the seeds, and God brought the growth. And you are here today because of them. Which brings us to our final point, that true disciples know kingdom growth will exceed their expectations. Kingdom growth is going to exceed their expectations. What, what can you expect from preaching? I don't know. But I know whatever God does with it, it's going to go far beyond what I would have ever imagined. And that's what Jesus says in this last parable, Mark 4.30. How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, you've been in church long. I'm sure you've heard stories or examples on the mustard seed. Jesus in another place says if you even have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to mountains, move, and they'll do it. So the mustard seed is one of these flexible images that Jesus uses in other places. And the reason for that is because the mustard seed was sort of the proverbial smallest seed in Judaism. And so sometimes people think they're going to pull a fast one on Jesus and say, well, he says it's the smallest seed, but they're actually smaller seeds. That's not the point, okay? The point is, it's really small. In fact, you can fit 6,000 mustard seeds in one gram. That's a lot of seeds. And they're pretty insignificant. Like, you know, you're planting your seeds in your garden and one falls on the ground. You're not sweating it. You can't find it. It's buried deep within the carpet fibers. You just let it go. It's insignificant and unvaluable. But Jesus chose this particular seed for a reason. Because though the gospel begins small, though the kingdom is small and insignificant from the beginning, the results are going to be extravagant. I mean, if the disciples were discouraged by the slow progress and the lack of response to Jesus' message, he knew full well where it was headed. He, he saw the end from the beginning. And he had a God-sized vision for the kingdom. They didn't. They're impressed by big, and all they can see is small. And so they're liable to miscalculate and make the wrong measurement on its significance and just let it go in one ear and out the other. But Jesus says, despite their expectations, and contrary to the present fruit, the kingdom was coming, and it was going to be huge. The disciples' main hope was that maybe someday Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. That was their biggest dream. And so they asked him after the resurrection in Acts 1-6. They're on the mountain. He's about ready to ascend into heaven. And they say, hey, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had a very small idea of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. They had the glory days, the golden age of David on his throne and peace from the Philistines. And they thought, the Messiah, he's about to do this. Jesus, the Messiah, he's going to reestablish the kingdom. But Jesus says, actually, it's going to be like this mustard seed that grows into a large tree and birds of the air's nest in its branches. And my Bible has that birds of the air nest in its branches in all capital letters, which tells me, the translators want me to know, that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And I think Jesus was saturated with God's word. So he thought in biblical pictures, and he thought in biblical stories. That was his frame of reference for the world. And so he chose it for a reason. And it's an obscure passage. You like track down the footnote, the little 
maybe center column of your Bible that gives you the cross references, and you're like, Daniel 4. Wait, what's Daniel 4? So you track down this little obscure passage, and you see that there's this dream that's been dreamed. And Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, is disturbed by it. And so he calls this Hebrew prophet and wisdom man to interpret it for him. And so Daniel says, hey, yeah, you've dreamed a dream, and it's of a giant tree that's filling the earth, and the animals of the field get up underneath it so they can stay cool in the heat of the day, and the birds of the air make their nests in its branches. And Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, that's the dream. He says, well, let me tell you what God's trying to say. And he says, you are the tree. Because you've become great, this is Daniel 4.22, you've become great and you've grown strong, and your majesty's become great and reach to, the, reach to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen. We, we went through the book of Daniel last school year, and y'all remember, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was, he was the jam. That's the only way you can say it. He's the greatest king over all the earth. They called him the king of kings, and they bowed down to his statues. I mean, come on. But you know, by the Jesus' day, his kingdom was a thing of the past. Though his dominion had extended to the ends of the earth, and though all the peoples from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to India called him their king, he's a figment of their memory. Somebody they talk about in legends. But Jesus says his kingdom's coming, and it's going to be kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's, in that its majesty was going to become great, and his dominion was going to reach to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus knew the Bible really well. He knew what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 86. Lord, all nations whom you've made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. He knew that the promise of the Messiah in Psalm 2 was that he'd rule the nations of the earth with a rod of iron. And he believed what Zechariah said, that all the families of the earth were going to stream to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That was the longed-for reality. And Jesus said it was coming. Though it was starting insignificantly with a group of 12 guys and maybe as many as 120 total people really committed to following Christ, one day it was going to cover the face of the earth. I mean, that's what Jesus says, isn't it, in Matthew 28? Going to all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. He tells them in Acts 1.8, right after he tells them, hey, it's not, time for, it's not right for you to know the times or seasons fixed by the Father's authority, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to, get it, the ends of the earth. Jesus' kingdom was going to exceed their expectations. He wasn't in the business of restoring to Israel what they had lost. He was about to enlarge it far beyond their imagination. He knew that he was going to die to purchase for God a people from every nation, tribe, and language. See, disciples know kingdom growth is going to exceed their expectations. And for people who are impressed by big results... Sometimes Jesus' ministry seems small and insignificant. I mean, even in a world, get this, 100 million Christians in China today. I think by 2030, the largest population, or the, world's, the majority of the world's Christians are going to be in China in 10 years. 80% of them are in underground churches. And every time they gather for worship, 
threat hangs over their head of being locked up for life. Now, the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, multiplying among Muslim background believers who are coming to know Jesus. We have, I mean, even we have healthy churches here at home. Like, you, you know, you move from Luling to New Braunfels or New Braunfels to Luling, and hey, there's a church here for you. There's a church there for you. There's lots of churches, and you can pick and choose the style of music you like and the kind of Bible teaching. I mean, hey, take your pick. But even in that world, it's sometimes hard to see the progress, and it's easy to get discouraged. But true disciples don't. They plant in hope for the harvest because they know the hidden work of the kingdom's temporary and kingdom growth is inevitable. And bit by bit, God is doing something that's going to exceed their expectations. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you planting seeds in hope? Do you consider it your life's work? to bring your family and your friends to Christ. What else is more important than that? Don't get discouraged when your kids won't listen to Bible time, when your grandkids don't want to hear about Jesus, when your spouse don't want to hear about it, when your neighbor makes sure they don't see you in the driveway because they know you're going to talk to them about Jesus again. And they avoid you at all costs. Don't get discouraged at work. Plant seeds and hope for the harvest. God can't help but bless his word. He can't help but build his kingdom. That's what he's all about, magnifying the glory of Jesus through people like us. I'm praying. As people move to this county, somebody told me this week, 3,100 water meters are going in between Prairie Lee and Fentress. That's crazy. Where are those people going to go to church? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Not so that the church grows, but because we've been commanded, the kingdom grows inevitable. And if we're faithful to plant the seeds, people are going to come to know Jesus. I pray that that would be us. Will you pray that with me? Let's pray.